Amen. Praise the Lord. I'll invite you to turn your Bibles tonight to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. We'll start reading with verse 5. It says, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him. Now, a centurion was a Roman soldier, uh, literally a captain. Uh, the, the word centurion means a hundred. It means he was a captain over an army of a hundred or a uh, hundred soldiers under him. So it said that there came a centurion beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. I like this from the original language. The original Greek says, having come, I will heal him. Now, if you think about that, that changes the meaning. Now, I don't doubt for a, for a moment Jesus is saying, I'll come to your house and, and, and heal your, your, uh, uh, your servant. I don't have any doubt about that whatsoever. But literally, what it says in the original language is, having come. Well, when did Jesus came? When, that's not right. When did Jesus come? Jesus came when God sent him to the earth. Literally, what he's saying is, having come to the earth, I will. Having come to the earth, I will heal. I like that. It's telling that healing belongs to anybody and everybody. Jesus, however, said, I'll come and heal her from the King James. And the centurion answered him and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should come under my roof. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. Now, folks, I've got to tell you, I think there's a lot of things God marvels at, and most of them have nothing to do with faith. But this is a situation where a man caused Jesus to marvel. Jesus marveled and said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. I don't know about you, but the idea of making Jesus marvel because I'm in, I'm, I have great faith or I'm strong in faith, that just lights me up. I like that. I think God probably sits in heaven marveling because, uh, because, or wondering why people won't believe His Word. But here He's marveling because a man has great faith. Now, what's the characteristic? He, he winds up saying, Go your way, and as thou hast believed, be it done unto thee. His servant was healed. The thing that caused this man to be great in faith was the fact that he said, speak the word only. Great faith says, I don't need anything except the word. Now, the Bible tells us how he got there. He understood that because he was a man under authority. He had experience with authority. He knows that his words carried power with the soldiers that were under him and the servants that, were, that belonged to him. He knew that when he spoke to his soldiers, he knew that when he spoke to the servants, he knew those words were going to be carried out because he's the one that has authority over them. And so he recognizes that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease and his words carry power that dominates sickness and disease that literally heals the sick. So he said, all I need is the word. Folks, I want you to understand, great faith doesn't need anything except the word of God. The kind of faith that causes God to be glad, to marvel is the kind of faith that says, I don't need anything except the Word. Now think about the, the reverse of that. Think about how many people in the body of Christ are looking for something else instead or something else added to the Word. Well, yeah, I believe the Bible, but I'm looking to get Pastor so-and-so to lay hands on me. I'm looking to get the, the person with the special healing anointing to minister to me. I'm not against people that have special anointings. I'm not against anybody laying hands on the sick. The Bible tells us to do that. But why? So many times people are looking for the word plus something. I, I can't tell you how many times that we had, a, well, just last week, last Sunday night, we wound up praying for people in, in, in the congregation, not laying hands on people individual, but we just kind of claimed our healing, you know, as a, as a group, as a congregation. And I had 10 people come up to me after the service and say, Pastor Mike, would you lay hands on me? Because they're looking for something other than just the Word. Now, I know that people have their idea, have different ideas about how it's supposed to work and, and that kind of stuff. And, and okay, I'm, you know, I, I didn't turn anybody away. I, I tried to steer them over into faith. Let's, let's just uh, I'll lay hands on you and agree that what we've already done earlier in the service, you know, that um, uh, just try to do it in faith as much as we could. With a couple, there was no way to, to do that. They just they discounted what we had done before, and they said, okay, this is going to be the way and the only way that I'll accept it. 
So, okay, you, you know, sometimes I just do things to try not to offend people. Believe it or not, there are sometimes I just do things to try not to offend people. I don't know if it balances out, but sometimes it's like that. But anyway, great faith says speak the word only. It's not looking for anything in addition to the word of God. It's not looking for anything in addition to the word of God. Yet, there's something on the other side of that. Turn with me over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James, who is the only New Testament writer who is a pastor, approached things from a lot different angle than Paul did and from what Peter did. Now, Paul and Peter's ministry were both uh, ministries where they would go and they would stay a certain period of time. Paul, especially, we have more information about him. He would go and he would be anywhere from three months to three and a half years at one place to establish a church. But then he would leave and he would be uh, on his way somewhere else. His was uh, more an itinerant type of ministry as Peter's was as well. And, uh, and so James was somebody, and James is the half-brother of Jesus. James was somebody that lived with people, and as a result, he talks about a lot more down-to-earth stuff than, uh, than Paul or, or Peter does when it comes to the subject of faith. That makes sense. Because if you're, if you're there for, uh, if you're people, with people for a shorter period of time, your intent is to inspire their faith, not necessarily cover all the bases. We saw that with Terry Mize. Terry came in and, man, the stories and the, the miracles and the different accounts that he related to us, you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. I mean, faith was such a, at such a high level. And Terry told me afterwards, he said, Mike, he said, I feel so bad. Uh, maybe it was the next day at lunch. He said, I feel so bad about the service last night. And I said, why in the world would you feel bad about the service? It was great. And he said, well, he said, I was trying to get out of there quick enough and, and, and that kind of thing. He said, you know, if we'd stayed longer, he said, if we'd stuck in there with it and, and, uh, and, and got a couple of testimonies and, and talked about the testimonies, then that would have caused other people's faith to rise and, and every person in that room would have been healed. Well, okay, yeah, I get that. I understand that's how it works. That's the way he's accustomed to working overseas and with larger crowds and crusades and things like that. So I get that. But somebody that just is, uh, well, like Terry. Terry wasn't there to tell you all the ins and outs of faith. Terry was there to inspire your faith so that you'd get results. That's a lot like Paul's ministry. But James was there all the time. James had time to slice it up. James had time to turn it over and inspect it from every angle. So notice a couple of things that James says. James says in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 21, he said, Re- Receive with meekness. And I, I really, the translators did us a terrible job on verse 21. They used words that don't mean anything to us. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Now that's the way you talk, isn't it? And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. It received with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Folks, this is King James English for saying exactly what Paul said to renew your mind. He said, lay aside all the other stuff that hinders you and weighs you down. Uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 12 saying, uh, seeing we are encompassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the, the, uh, the sins which do easily possess us. So he talks about weights and sins. What do they do? They hold you back from running your race. That's what James is saying. But the King James comes out a lot worse in this, doesn't it? So he says, lay aside all the things that hold you back and receive with meekness the engrafted word. He's saying you're going to have to make a decision to step away from some things to receive the word. I want that to sink in. He says you're going to have to step away from, drop off some things in order to receive the word. Folks, that's true where healing is concerned. You're going to have to drop off some things to accept the word of God where healing is concerned. You're going to have to drop away and drop off and, and, and turn away from some things in order to receive healing. Now, where does Paul tell us that? We don't see that in any Paul's crusades. Do we? We don't see that. We see Paul going to place and preaching Jesus for a period of time, or really preaching the law, it usually starts in the synagogues, he'll go to a town and he'll preach and, and reason with the, the Jews, the rabbis, the religious leaders that are there, and finally he gets to the place where he's impressed in his spirit, and now it's time to tell them about Jesus. And that's when everything breaks loose. 
The religious leaders get mad, run him out of the synagogue, so he goes somewhere else in town, and then he really preaches Jesus, and after a certain period of time, we don't know how long, sometimes it's within a week, sometimes it's within several weeks, sometimes it's within a month or two, then he starts having miracles. And when the miracles occur, very few, very few times, uh, Galatia, the region of Galatia is an exception, very few times was the first time Paul went somewhere followed by a miracle. Usually Paul would preach and minister over a period of time. Then he would proclaim Jesus is the Messiah. He'd been talking about the Old Testament laws and scriptures and so forth. Then he tells about Jesus being the Son of God, raised from the dead. And after a period of time of proclaiming Jesus, that's when he started having miracles. We get the idea that the apostles had all this power and they just got instant results everywhere they went. Well, they didn't. Nobody did. But James, who's there all the time, tells us. He's dealing with people that are saved. He's dealing with people that are already in the family of God. So he says, you're going to have to lay aside some things in order to receive healing. And we'll talk about what some of those things are if we get to them. One thing particularly. So he says, lay aside this stuff, all the things that pull you down, all the distractions, the physical desires and, and all the wrong thinkings and different things like that. Lay aside that stuff and receive with meekness. Be teachable. Meekness just means teachable. Meekness doesn't, it's not talking about a, a personality trait. It's not talking about, you know, beating down, you know, oh yeah, I'll take whatever comes. No, it doesn't mean that. It means to be teachable. And the Bible says Jesus was meek above all men. That doesn't mean he was willing to be taught by the Pharisees, but he identified what was truth, and so he was able to be taught by God. The Bible says Moses was the meek, uh, was meek above all men too. Folks, when you know who you are in God, you don't have to try to prove it. And it seems to me that people that are trying to prove it hadn't figured it out yet. I see a lot of preachers that are just being rude trying to say they're bold, and that, that's not the way it's supposed to be. It looks to me like in a lot of those cases, and I'm not singling out anybody's name, and I'm not calling anybody by name, so you don't know who I'm talking about. But it seems to me in a lot of those situations, they haven't figured out who they are in Christ yet. James says, lay this stuff aside and receive with meekness. Be teachable to the Word of God. And he calls it the engrafted Word. So he's not just talking about listening to it. He's talking about accepting it into your heart. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. And notice what it does. It says it's able to save your souls. The saving of the soul is the same thing as the renewing of the mind that Paul talked about in Romans 12.1. 2, 12, 2. He's talking about, and it will renew your mind. When you accept the teaching of the word of God, it'll renew your mind. Therefore, he has to mean some of the laying aside stuff is wrong thinking. Because you can't accept the right thinking and have your mind renewed to the Word unless you lay aside and drop off some of the wrong thinking, right? I see some Christians trying to do this. It's like trying to change a diaper without removing the old diaper first. Just putting a new diaper on a baby does not change anything. You've got to get rid of the old stuff and all the stuff that goes with the old stuff. That's when it does some good. That's what the renewing of the mind's like. It's taking the old thinking, the old way of thinking, and exchanging it for the engrafted word. Because that's able to save your souls. Now notice verse 22. He said, but, but, meaning this is not the end of it all. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. He's telling us that you could be somebody with the purpose of being, having your mind renewed to the word and still miss it. He's saying you could be willing to think rightly according to the Word of God and still miss it. Because he says after you choose to make the Word of God the way that you're going to live, after you choose to make the Word of God the way that you're going to think, then he says now you've still got to be a doer of the Word. But be ye doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. I hate to say it, folks, but you've got a lot of people in the faith world, in the faith camp, whatever you want to call this segment of the church that believes in healing and believes in the power of God and believes in the, the gifts of the Spirit, you've got a lot of people in, that, in those circles that are self-deceived because they never get further than quoting the Word. 
But James is the one that tells us that it takes more than that. It takes more than that. It takes being a doer of the word. Now notice chapter 2. Notice James chapter 2. We won't take a lot of time to read it. As a matter of fact, I just want to hit one verse, the last verse of the chapter, verse 26, I believe it is. Notice it says, For as the body without the spirit is dead, even so faith without works is dead also. What's he saying? He's saying you can have faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is believing in the heart and confessing with your mouth. But he says if that's as far as you go, your faith won't produce results. He didn't say it's not faith. It is faith. But he says it has to produce by taking action. We made a statement this morning, if you were with us, uh, in uh, Mark chapter 2, where it tells the story of uh, uh, the guy that was crippled that was carried by the four other guys. Jesus is in the house and, and they can't get there because the, the, everything is packed so tightly. There's so many people there. They can't get in through the door. Nobody will, will make a way for them to get in. So they go up on the roof, take off the roof, break down through the roof, and then they let this guy down with ropes, one rope at each, four, each of the four corners, I guess. And Jesus sees him coming down. I, I don't know how this would work. Does everybody have to park then and, and make a place for him? I don't know. But he sees them coming down. And the Bible says, when Jesus saw their faith. I made a statement this morning that you can always see faith. Real faith can be seen. People have this idea, I, I hate the term blind faith. There's no such thing. Or maybe I should say it this way. Bible faith can never be blind faith. I guess there could be blind faith in other areas of life, but not Bible faith. Bible faith can never be blind. Ever. Now, Bible faith can be ignorant. There's a lot of things that I've believed for that I had no idea how it was going to work. I was ignorant on how. The Bible calls those kind of people no-nots. The Bible says that Abraham followed God going out to a place that he knew not. Well, I've been a no-not a lot of times. How about you? So that doesn't mean you know everything. But he knew, even when he knew not where he was going, he knew that the end result was going to be the land that God promised. You see what I mean? This idea about blind faith, it can't be Bible-based if it's blind faith. And on the other side, Bible faith can never be blind. It always knows what the end result is. It may not know how to get there. It may not know how everything's going to work. You may not know how your healing is going to come. You may not know how... The healing is going to manifest, especially when the doctor said there's no hope. You may not know how. What does it mean? Does it mean God's going to shrink a tumor? Does it mean the tumor's going to disappear? Does it mean I'm just going to get better and better? What does it mean? You may not know how. But you can always know the end result is you were healed by the stripes of Jesus. So Jesus says that real faith can be seen. Why? James tells us because faith has to have works. Now, another translation says that a little better for me. And the reason I, I like it better is because most people think of works in the way that Paul taught about works. Paul talked about the contrast between faith and works. Now James is talking about faith and works. So the translators did us a disservice here in my opinion because they're not talking about the same thing. Paul is telling us you can't work your way to God. It has to be by faith in Jesus. And he's exactly right. That's why faith and works are at odds in Paul's communication that's what he fought against the jews that's what they kept saying you've got to keep the law of moses he says no you don't law of moses doesn't have anything to do with anything it's jesus and him crucified that's what the rub was that's what the persecution against him was about so faith and, and works are opposites in that context well what's james talking about then how could faith without works be dead then if faith and works are opposites because the works that James is talking about is corresponding actions to faith. When Jesus saw the faith of the four men letting down the guy through the roof, what he saw was the actions that they took because they believed. And that's the kind of Bible faith that can always be seen. That's the kind of Bible faith that can always be seen. Turn back with me to, uh, uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 20. No, no, Mark chapter 10. Let's, let's look at it in Mark's gospel. I like Mark's account better because it gives us a little bit better, uh, better information. Mark chapter 10.
We'll start reading in verse, 50, uh, verse 46. Mark 10, verse 46. And he said, And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. Now, folks, please understand something. We don't get a lot of information about who's who when they get healed by Jesus. Why this guy? We don't know the woman with the issue of blood's name. That's the greatest story on the subject of faith and healing that you can find. Why don't we know her name? Why didn't it tell us? And a certain woman named whatever heard of Jesus and came in the press behind. Why didn't it tell us her name? Why does it tell us about blind Bartimaeus? Why is his name here and others are not? Got to be a reason. God doesn't do things accidentally. There's got to be a reason. You know what the reason is? Because this guy was known by everybody as a blind beggar. Everybody knew him. This is his spot. This is him. He's always there. Who's that? Oh, that's blind Bartimaeus. Well, who's blind Bartimaeus? Oh, he's the son of Timaeus. Or whatever his name is. Sorry, not real good with those names. I'm from Alabama. I'm th- it's tough for English for me. This guy was known by everybody. Think about what Mark is doing when he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to write this. He's using a name. He's writing someone who's still alive. He's writing an account of someone that everybody knows. Remember the story of blind Bartimaeus? Blind Bartimaeus, oh yeah, that's the blind beggar that used to sit on the highway. You know, the son of Timaeus. Timotheus, whatever. Yeah, we know him. Everybody knows him. That's what, that's what Mark is writing by, the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, about. He's writing a story that everybody knows. It would be the equivalent of, of Stevie Wonder receiving a sight. If Stevie Wonder got healed, you don't think people would call him by name? Cheer about Stevie Wonder? Got healed. People are going to hear this part of the tape and they're going to think, He did? Really? That's what's going on here. There was a certain blind man named Bartimaeus, the son of Timotheus, who sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth who passed by, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Now, folks, what are the principles of faith? Mark chapter 11, verse 23 and 24 says that the principles of faith are very simply this. If you believe in your heart and say with your mouth, you'll have what you say. That's it. It's just that simple. That's how you got saved. You believed in your heart, the word that you heard preached or somebody sharing a testimony with you or something. You believed that Jesus died on the cross and that he was raised from the dead just simply by the information you received, however it came. And then you said with your mouth, yeah, okay, I'll accept that. I confess Jesus is my Lord. You did that in some way or another. Whether it was asking Jesus to come into your heart or literally saying, I confess Jesus is my Lord. One way or another, you confess Jesus as your Lord and then you got saved. You weren't saved before you said it. You said it and it brought the results of salvation. You acted in faith to get saved. And those principles of faith, believe in your heart, say with your mouth. You didn't get saved before you prayed. You didn't get saved before you made your confession. You got saved as a result of believing in your heart and making your confession or or saying your prayer. That's how everything works with God. The Bible says without faith it's impossible to receive from God. You can't get saved without faith. You can't get saved without believing in your heart and saying it first. In some form, you can't do it. It's impossible. You can't receive anything else from God without believing in your heart and saying it first. But the church world has lied to us. The church world says, well, okay, that works with salvation, but not with anything else. Well, when did faith change? Where does the Bible say faith changes? As a matter of fact, the Bible says, Paul said, writing to the Corinthians, he said, there are three things that are eternal, faith, hope, and love. They'll never fade away. They'll never change. Now, you can have people that say, well, healing's been done away with. Well, faith hadn't. If faith produced results before, faith will produce results now. People say, well, the day, the day of miracles have passed. Well, the God of miracles hasn't. And the Bible says you receive miracles by faith. And it hadn't changed. It never changes. 
Folks, faith is going to still be at work when you and I are in heaven. You better figure out how to make it work here. This is the learning ground. It'll work for eternity. I have no idea what God's going to do with all these people that say it doesn't work now. What are you going to do when they get to heaven? I'm glad God has to figure that out. Of course, if he wants to put me in charge, I have some suggestions. <laughs> Faith's eternal. Faith never changes. It's believing first, speaking because you believe, and then the results come. That's what the centurion did. We just read it. He believed that Jesus had authority over sickness, so he said, all you got to do is speak. All you got to do, speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. What did he get? The very thing that he said. What he believed in his heart and said with his mouth is what he got. Verse 47 again. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, please notice the word say, he began to say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. That's a very proper way to say they told him to shut up. Don't say that. Folks, have you ever operated in faith and had people tell you, don't say that? And is that not one of the greatest hindrances to some people making their confessions of faith because they know other people are going to disagree with them, they're not going to understand, they're not going to like it, and they're not going to support them? Here's what the Bible says to do about that situation. And many charged him that he should hold his peace, but he cried the more. A great deal, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Well, how do we know that he believed anything? He's just crying out for help. How do we know he believed anything? Because the phrase, thou son of David, is a direct reference to the Messiah. Why does he start crying out, Jesus, you're the Messiah? When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth that passed by, that's when he started hollering out. So he must have heard something about Jesus prior to it, hasn't he? It doesn't say that they told him Jesus the Messiah is here. And then he starts saying, oh, hey, Messiah, come. That's not what happens. He hears the commotion and says, what's going on? And somebody said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So whatever he's heard about Jesus prior to that, he's already determined that as far as he's concerned, he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, so he starts crying out for mercy. So he must have heard something about Jesus and must have heard something about his mercy. Otherwise, what's he crying about? What's he crying out for? When the people try to shut him up, when people try to quiet him, quieten him down, you know, you've got to keep things dignified. Don't get out of order. He cried, the more a great deal, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Now, I want you to notice something, folks. Jesus did not respond when he first called. Well, that seems pretty rude of him, doesn't it? Do you know why Jesus doesn't respond the first time people call? Because it's easy to say something and know that you're going to give up if it doesn't happen right away. But when you face adversity and you hang on and call more, that's when Jesus stopped. Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me, did not stop him. But when people try to shut him up, and he cries out a great deal more, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. That stops Jesus in his tracks. Say, bring him over here. You know, the Bible says that when, uh, when God led Israel through the wilderness and um, uh, leading them the first time through the promised land or toward, toward the promised land, not after they rejected and said, we can't do it and operated in unbelief. But the Bible says that when they were on their way to the promised land, Moses instructed the people. And he said, God led you into the wilderness and he brought you into a place of affliction. That's very similar to Luke chapter 4 where it says the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness. Folks, I want you to understand, God sometimes leads you into the wilderness. He sometimes leads you into a hard place. Now why? For the same reason that Jesus did, for the same reason that he led the children of Israel. Here's what Exodus says. It says, God led you into a desert place where you were afflicted. King James says he afflicted you, but that's not what it says. It says he led you into the desert place where you were afflicted. 
And then he gave you manna so that he might prove what was in your heart. You know what causes you to know what's really in your heart? Not the easy times. It's not when everything's going smooth. It's not when you feel good. You'll never know what's in your heart about healing when you feel great. But you know when you find out? When you have to make a choice. Here's how my body feels, but here's what the Word says. Which one is true for me? That's what this guy just faces. He hears Jesus is passing by. Jesus is his help. Based on whatever he's heard about Jesus, he starts calling him the Messiah, and he starts asking for mercy. But that doesn't get the results. But when he faces even more adversity, and then people try to shut him up, oh, no, no, don't bother him, don't bother him, he's busy. You don't know what kind of day he's had. When people try to shut him up, that's when he cries out the more. He refuses to be denied. He does everything he can to reach Jesus, who is his answer. And that stops Jesus in his tracks. He says, bring him over here. Why? Because now Jesus has proved what's in his heart. Is he just crying out when it seems proper and appropriate? Or is he crying out because he knows Jesus is his help and he's not going to let go without a fight? Jesus commanded him to be brought to him. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calls thee. These are the very people that told him, Shut up. Had a boy. Shh, 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 don't bother him. Oh, Jesus is calling you. I'll go with you. I'll take you right there. I'll let Jesus see that it was me that brought you. Be of good comfort. He calleth thee. Verse 50. Verse 50 is the key. And he, casting away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? He's asked for mercy. Mercy can mean a number of things. We've been talking about that for weeks in the Sunday morning services. Mercy could be in a number of things. He said, you've asked for mercy. Where do you need it? What area do you need mercy? He said, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way. Thy faith has made thee whole. Can I ask you a question? How does Jesus know the guys in faith? Go thy way, thy faith has made thee whole, and immediately you received the sight and followed Jesus in the way. Now, we know what the principle of faith is. The principle of faith is to believe in your heart, say with your mouth, and then get results. Jesus said it's faith. He gets the results that faith would bring. He believed something about Jesus. He said with his mouth, and then he got results. But remember what James said. James said faith without works is dead. What works did this guy do? What corresponding actions that, that, or what actions corresponded with his faith that brought him the miraculous healing mercy of God. Verse 50, he cast away his garment. You know what that garment signified? That garment signified that he was a beggar. He did not go to Jesus as a blind beggar. He changed everything about his outlook on himself or toward himself when he took, cast away that garment. He tossed that garment off his back and he went to Jesus just like anybody else would. I'm not a blind beggar. I'm not a blind beggar coming to you asking for you to do something to me. If he had done that, Jesus would have said, well, yeah, here's your money. He came as a beggar. That coat signified that he was a beggar. He cast his garment off of him. He took away everything that represented what his old life was. That's exactly, exactly what James is talking about where he says, wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. He's saying, strip off the old stuff that holds you back and receive with meekness the engrafted word and then be a doer of it. Well, in some cases, there's nothing you can do except make a confession. Not so. You can always praise God for the answer. That's why the Bible says over and over again in the Old Testament, when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord said ambushments. That's why the Bible says in Acts chapter 16, it said, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. It's always the action that spurs the results. Look at all the things that Jesus told people to do. He told a man with a withered hand to stretch forth his hand. How do you do that? You can't. Physically. Naturally. 
He told the man that was crippled, rise, take up your bed and walk. How does a crippled guy get up and walk? You can't, naturally. He told a blind guy to look up. How does a blind guy look anywhere? He told people to do other things. He told one guy, he made a mud pack and put it on one guy's eyes and said, go wash off in the pool of Siloam. Why? Why didn't, he say, why didn't the guy say, I don't want to go to the pool of Siloam. That's a long way away. I'm blind. Can't you say I'm blind, Jesus? That'd be a tough trip for me. Somebody give me some water. Let me just pour it on my eyes here. Why? Because Jesus always had people take action. It's the action that activates the power. The words set the stage. But the action is what brings your faith to life. That's why Terry said when he was here, if we'd taken more time, we could have gotten some testimonies. Who sees a difference? Who sees a result from what we just prayed? Who sees a result? Somebody would have raised their hand. He would have brought them up here. He would have talked to them about it, talked to them about what the situation was before, what's the situation now. And when people started seeing that there were things, even small things, that were happening, then faith in the group would rise. And as faith in the group rose then more things would start to happen. That's how T.L. Osborne used to minister on the, on the foreign field. T.L. Osborne would go out and he would preach a simple message about Jesus. Ever heard T.L. preach? He would say magnificent things in short four-word sentences. You are God's champion. And it just sent thrills through you. Just hearing him say something simple like that. Jesus came for you. Simple things like that. He had spent 15, 20 minutes just saying simple little third grade sentences to tell people about who Jesus was and what God did for them and how God loves them. And then he would step back and he'd pray, Jesus, heal the people. And then he had people start singing. He'd just stand up on the platform and they'd start singing. All of a sudden, somebody on, this, on, the, on one side of the crowd would start screaming, Ah! They knew who to go get. Come here. Then they start running them up on the platform. Somebody else would start screaming. Somebody else, something would happen. And then they'd figure out what's going on. As soon as they had the first testimony, people would figure out, okay, when you get healed, you go to the platform. They'd have people lined up all around the, the, the field. Why? And he'd tell them up front. He'd say, now, he said, I'm gonna, I want to pray for you before you go home tonight that Jesus would be your Savior. But if he doesn't heal, don't believe in him. Somebody would scream. They had people with, they had the ushers, the people on the crusade team, run to the people that screamed. Drag them by the arm up here. Other times there'd be demon-possessed people that would scream. And T.L. would not let them interrupt the service. He'd cast the devil out. He'd talk about people that would be going on the, the ground slithering like a snake doing stuff, he said, that, that would seem to be humanly impossible, physically impossible to do. He'd cast the devil. Satan, I refuse to allow you to disrupt this meeting. Come out of it in Jesus' name. Wouldn't even pay attention. Just go on about his business. Why? Because faith acts. Faith always takes action. Always. Well, Pastor Mike, how do I know if I'm in faith or not? What are you doing? Well, I'm confessing. That's good. That's good. That's one important step. Faith is believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. But faith without works is dead. Don't ever accept. Don't ever accept your confession as being the last word on works. Don't ever accept that your confession is all that you need to do. I know when I'm attacked with sickness, and I'm not talking about anything big. I'm just talking about colds or flu symptoms or something like that. Whenever I'm attacked with sickness, I always do the same thing, and I always will do the same thing unless God directs me otherwise. I take the Word of God, same thing that I instruct you to do. Thank you, Father, that Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, and with His stripes I am healed. Now, if I'm on my game, if I'm paying attention, I know that there's more to do. But sometimes I'm just like you are. I get distracted with stuff. And many times I get distracted and I just go through my day saying, thank you, Lord, that I'm healed by Jesus' stripes. And this thing hangs on and lingers and lingers and lingers. And then after a couple of days, I'll get fed up with that and I'll say, wait a minute, what am I doing? This is not just about confessing. If I really believe it, it's going to change the way that I live. 
And that's the faith without works is dead thing that we're talking about. Faith always acts. What you believe will change your life. And if it's not changing your life, you don't really believe it. Sorry. Just the way it works. What you believe will change your life. So I realize it's got to go beyond just thanking God for it. I've got to start singing. And I folks, you know I'm not a singer. It's the only thing in my life I have a negative confession about. But I'll start singing just little simple songs. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. By his stripes I know I'm healed. It's so good to be healed. When I start singing, symptoms start vanishing. Not when I speak, not when I confess, but when my confession leads me to take action as if it's already done. That's the works that bring results. Faith without corresponding actions is dead. It's faith. It's just not active or alive faith. It's not living faith. And living faith is what brings results from God. That's why Jesus always said people do something. He always said some people do something. Because he, in many cases, at least half of the cases of Jesus' healing in the four Gospels, Jesus said, according to your faith, be it unto you. He put the pressure on the individual, according to your faith. Now think about that. Here's the Son of God who had the Spirit of God without measure, and He said, according to your faith, be it done unto you. Well, Jesus, what about your faith? I don't want to get healed on my faith. I want to get healed on your faith. You're the Son of God. Why did He turn around it on the individual? Because faith is necessary to receive from God, no matter how anointed He is. So He said, according to your faith, be it done unto you. That's why He gave people instruction to act as if it's done. Stretch forth your hand. How do you do that? You can't unless it's done. Rise, take up your bed and walk to the cripple. How can you do that? You can't unless it's done. The blind, look up. How do you look up when you're blind? You can't unless it's done. That's what the centurion is saying. Speak the word only. That's all I need. If I've got the word of God for healing is concerned, if I've got the truth of the word, all I've got to do is accept it and live it as if it's real. Now, folks, we made this statement this morning, but it, it, it's, I've been meditating on it all day long, and honest to goodness, I never thought about it before I said it. I learn a lot from my preaching. I don't know if you do or not, but I learn a lot from my preaching. You can't tell me that the father in Mark chapter 9 who said, Lord, I, I believe, help my unbelief, you can't tell me that he was in great faith. But it was still enough for the mercy of God's healing to set his son free. Now think about it from a salvation standpoint. Do we have anybody in any church on the face of the earth that when the service is over and people have altar calls or however they do it, where somebody is standing there monitoring their confession of faith or their prayer of faith to get saved and say, no, it didn't work for you. You don't really believe. Well, what about the people that do come that give their heart to Jesus? What about the people that really do get saved? You're going to tell me that everybody has great faith that Jesus is raised from the dead? You're going to tell me that everybody starts off with this tremendous faith to make Jesus the Lord of their lives? No. What do they have? They have just a seed of faith that they heard from people preaching, saying Jesus died for your sins and God raised Him from the dead three days later. That's it. How great a faith can you have just hearing that? Just a seed. Just a small measure, but it's enough to change your life. You're going to tell me that God requires a greater measure of faith for healing than He does to get saved? I don't believe it. The Bible says over and over again, it's the same faith that does the, the, does the two works. Same faith that saves is the faith that heals. You're going to tell me that it takes greater faith to get healed than it does to, for, to be made a new creature in Christ Jesus? I refuse to believe that. There's no scriptural basis for that whatsoever. Same measure of faith. But what does the devil do? The devil tries to tell you you don't have enough faith. Folks, it's not a question of having enough faith. It's a question of having any faith. If you've got any faith, you've got enough. If you've got any faith where healing is concerned, you've got enough to do the job. Do you understand the point I'm trying to make? Well, then what do we have to do 
to get that little bit of faith that we may be starting with to work? Very simple. Act on it. Act like it's done. Believe it, speak it, and then act like it's done. What would you do if it was really done? Well, if you're believing for finances, you'd be jumping up and down dancing a jig. If it was healing and you didn't have to deal with the sickness anymore, you'd be jumping up and down dancing a jig too. You'd be praising God for your answer, wouldn't you? I remember there was one time that I just felt terrible, just felt terrible. Hadn't been getting enough sleep. Flu symptoms were on top of me. So I said, oh, Lord, thank you that I'm healed. I'm going to bed now. I got in bed. I no sooner got in bed than the Lord spoke to me and said, what in the world are you doing? I said, I'm going to get some rest. He said, I thought you believed you were healed. I do. Do you normally go to bed on Tuesdays? No, not usually. Then what are you doing? Folks, please understand what he was asking me. He was asking me what I was doing. He didn't say, what are you believing? He said, what are you doing? I said, I see it. I got to go to work, don't I? He said, if you believe you're healed, you do. So I got up, started singing my little song. When I'm clogged up, everybody in the household makes fun of me because I sound like a foghorn. It's so good to be healed. My daughter especially, she laughs at me when I sing healing songs. So I just sing them more for her. So I went to work. By noon, every symptom was gone. Every symptom was gone. Brother Hagin said something uh, uh, about his own situation. And I want you to understand the difference here. Because, uh, uh, well, let me just tell you the story. Brother Hagin said that uh, after he believed he was healed, after he got off the, the uh, bed and was, his paralysis was gone, he was still having some very alarming symptoms with his heart. His heart wouldn't beat right. It would flutter, and, uh, and it caused him some, some real, um, well, not just discomfort, but it was a real situ- serious situation. And so uh, there would be times where he would just need to go lay down. And so he questioned the Lord about that. He said, Lord, how, uh, it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. How can I go to bed if I believe I'm healed? And the Lord spoke to him. He said, is there anything wrong with taking a nap? He said, no. He said, then do this. He said, don't pull the covers back and get in bed like you're sick. He said, just lay down on top of the covers and take a nap. Brother Hagin said that was all in the world. That made all the difference in the world. That's all he needed. Because now he's doing something that his body needs, but he's doing it in faith not acting like he's sick. Folks, we're talking about corresponding actions. We're talking about taking actions that correspond with what you claim to believe. Even as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. It's your action that activates the healing power of God. It's your action. Your words are important. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to emphasize one thing over another. But just making your confession, James says it over and over again. He says, show me your faith by your words. I'll show you mine by my actions. He said, you can claim to have faith. You can claim, all the, make all these confessions. As a pastor, he knows. I've had some experience with that too. I've got people that are making confessions, but they won't act like it's true to save their lives. And they're at the point with where now, you know, Pastor Mike, what else am I supposed to do? Act. Act. Somebody came up after the service this morning and said, Pastor Mike, I've been doing everything I'm supposed to do. I don't know why it's not working. I said, because you say it's not working. Well, what am I supposed to do? I said, run around the room. She said, well, I can't do that yet. I said, okay. Well, when it's done, you will be able to. She looked at me sideways. She knew there was something I was saying, but she didn't, she didn't get it. She didn't figure it out. She knew I was trying to tell her something. And what I was trying to tell her is, when it's real on the inside, when you accept it to be done, just like the centurion who had great faith, when you accept the word says so, so it's done. That's when you won't let your body hold you back any longer. I'm glad I've excited you. You know, folks, I've got to apologize. I have turned you into the same stiff people that I am. And that never was God's plan. 
but this is a new day. It's time for all of us to run and do some dancing and do some shouting and whatever. It's time for all of us. It's okay to do that when it's a desert, but the rain's falling now. Let's all stand. My wife is going to use that statement against me for the rest of my life. Hallelujah. Let's just thank him for his goodness. Oh, Father, thank you that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. We're not going to be healed. We are healed. We have been healed by the work of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that it's done. We believe it. We confess it. And, Father, we act by praising you. We act because we do count it done. Oh, Father, it's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. By his stripes, I know I'm healed. And it's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. By His stripes, I know I'm healed. And it's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. By His stripes, I know I'm healed. And it's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. By His stripes I know I'm healed, and it's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. It's so good to be healed. By His stripes I know I'm healed, and it's so good to be healed. How long am I supposed to sing that, Pastor Mike? Forever. Don't sing it trying to get something. Sing it because it's true. I mean, after the healing shows up in your body, you're still going to sing, aren't you? Yeah, that's when you'll really start singing, don't you? Well, sure. He was so conscious. How long is this going to take? Forever. You're supposed to live by faith. You're going to believe God for the rest of your life. Quit worrying about when something's going to happen and start being a doer of the Word. Amen? Amen. Say it after me. It's so good to be healed. By His stripes, I know I'm healed. And it's so good to be healed. Amen. God bless you.